0: our follow me series because over the past five weeks we've been looking at how we can move from shallow christianity towards deep and transformative discipleship thank you so much and we've been looking at different marks of healthy discipleship and so today we're going to look at our final mark of leading out of vulnerability and weakness and i don't know about you but for myself i was raised in the church i grew up in the church and i've learned that one of the most difficult places to be vulnerable is at church, right? Anyone else experienced that before? And the question that becomes, why? Why is it so hard to be vulnerable in the place where we should be the most vulnerable, right? And a reason for that is because at church, we're all on our best behavior, right? We try to make it look like we have it all together. You know, we don't talk about how on the way to church this morning, we got in a big fight on the car ride here, or how all the mistakes we made this past week, because we're supposed to be people who are continually being made and transformed to the image of Christ. But, you know, as we read Scripture and we examine Jesus' life, we try to say, okay, this is what Jesus does. This is what we should do. I haven't found a time in Scripture where I've seen Jesus riding on his donkey and getting upset because someone was going too slow. But yet here we are again, you know, driving in the car, whispering words under our breath that I can't say from the pulpit because someone is going 10 under in the fast lane, Right? So if we're being honest, most of us here are probably in the same boat. We have real questions, real issues, real situations that we are trying to work through. There is weakness that, if we were being honest, that we wish we could change. You know, when I was a kid, I felt God calling me to be a pastor. And as I grew older, that never changed. I took opportunities to serve at church and and got involved in ministry. And, And here I am now. But as I was considering, you know, becoming a pastor, one of the biggest things that I wrestled with was, am I good enough? You know, am I, am I good enough to do that? Because as a kid, I, I saw the pastors preaching on Sunday mornings, and they seemed so perfect, right? They seemed so wise and all-knowing. They seemed charismatic, anointed by God, Especially back then at that time, it seemed like pastors kind of strayed away from vulnerability. Thankfully now, I think we've gotten better at that. But I don't know if you've ever felt that same way, where it just seems like everyone seems so perfect, and here we are. And so we come to church on Sunday mornings, and we have this feeling that we have to pretend that everything is okay, that our relationship with God is growing, that there aren't any problems at home or the workplace. And I'm sure that there are some of you here who don't have many major issues going on right now. Life is going good, and that's great. But I also know that there are some of you here who maybe are going through some tough things. And regardless of which category you may find yourselves in this morning, as human beings, we all have insecurities and areas of growth that we wish we could grow in, right? And one thing for sure is that we don't like to admit when things are wrong in our lives. Society has wired us to protect ourselves and to not show weakness. A popular phrase you might have found yourself saying or have been told to you is fake it until you what? Make it, thank you. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that's not always a good principle. Let me give you one example. When I was a, a freshman in college, I had the opportunity to intern at Grand Rapids First with a kid's pastor there, Pastor Tim, or he was at the time. And one of my basically what I did there was I did whatever he needed me to do. So, you know, any task, it was my job to do. And one of my first tasks that I had to do was basically paint the backdrop of the kids' uh, stage set. And at that point in my life, I really hadn't painted much of anything in my life. I'm not an artist. I haven't really painted much at all. And so I figured, you know, okay, this is going to be fairly easy. So, you know, I brought some clothes that I could get dirty and when you're painting. And so I started painting these things, and it went by pretty quick. You know, t- 20 minutes goes by, and I look at the clock, and I go, I have like 15 more minutes before he's going to be back. And so I began to wonder, did I do something wrong? You know, did I did I miss something here? Did I make a mistake? Like why did I get through it so quickly? And then I realized my clothes, they're clean. And whenever I saw people painting things, they were like covered in paint. And so I figured I must have done something wrong, right? Because I am perfectly clean. This stuff is painted. What did I do wrong? And so I decided, you know, I have 10 minutes maybe I should just, you know, put some paint on my pants, maybe put a little bit on my shirt, you know, just to make it look like I worked hard, because clearly I missed something, right? And so I, I put some paint on myself, not a good idea, and he comes back in final, and he sees what I've and he says, hey, good job, you did a good job, and then he looks at me, and he goes, wow, you made a mess, and I realized in that moment, oh yeah, I I wasn't supposed to do that. That was from years of people painting things where they got dirty, right? And so it was a little bit embarrassing for myself, but then I realized faking it until you make it is not always the best idea. And similarly, faking our true identity is not what God intended for us as followers of Jesus. We must embrace our weaknesses. And But I recognize that for all of us here, it's not always easy to do. Because living a life that embraces weakness and vulnerability, it runs contrary to societal expectations. You know, society says to do more, gain more, make more, be successful. But embracing weakness and vulnerability, it exemplifies the way of Jesus. Now let me be clear, that doesn't mean that we get rid of everything we own and and go live in in a shack in the woods with the simplest of necessities, although some of you here might enjoy that. Any Ron Swanson's in the house, that's not me but rather, it is embracing the life that Jesus encouraged his followers to lead. And it doesn't feel natural, but it leads to true contentment and embraces the imago day or the image of God within us all. And it also reflects to the world the way of Jesus as it demonstrates what a life transformed by Jesus looks like. And so today, I want to look at Jesus' life and how he embraced weakness and vulnerability. And then with that frame of reference, look at what happens when we don't embrace the way of Jesus. And then once we have those two contrasting ideas, we'll look at how we can paint a new picture within the church of how we can embrace weakness and vulnerability that positions us to to better receive all that God has for us and to better minister to those around us. Because even the person who walked blamelessly on the earth also acknowledged his weaknesses and led out of vulnerability. And so I want to look briefly at a few moments in Christ's life where he demonstrated weakness and vulnerability for us. And what I find kind of ironic and somewhat astonishing about Jesus is, you know, we call Jesus King. You know, we ever hear the song, I'll Hell King Jesus. But his life in earthly terms was far from royal. And I love what Pete Scazzaro writes in Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's the book kind of we kind of based this series off of. And it describes Jesus' life as this. Let me read it to you real quick. God came to earth, not in, a fla- not in a flashy show of signs and wonders, but as an infant boy, born into poverty and obscurity. After living as a refugee in Egypt, he returned to grow up in Nazareth, a backwoods town, a long way from the big city. He waited 30 years to begin any public ministry, and even then, refused to do miracles on demand or overwhelm people with his brilliant intellect. His ministry was small and almost invisible by the world's standards. Throughout his ministry, Jesus exercised his power carefully, It was not to manipulate or force people into following him. He revealed just enough of himself to make faith possible, but hid just enough of himself to make faith necessary. And I love that summary of Jesus's life, because if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people who lived back in Jesus's day, they knew what the scriptures promised, right? They had hoped that God was going to send this Messiah King, a rescuer, to restore their power and place as a leading nation rather than continuing to live as subjects in the Roman Empire. So when word began to spread about Jesus and the things that he was doing and the following that he was building, people began to wonder, is this the guy that we've been waiting for? The person? Now, Jesus' disciples, they seemed to be pretty certain about that, right? They knew that Jesus was the Son of God, the one that they had been waiting for. But for both the disciples and those questioning whether Jesus was truly someone special— He operated in a way that was contradictory to their expectations of what that special someone might look like. And the same would probably go for us here today if we were to be honest. If I were to ask you to describe a king, you'd probably think back to, you know, your world history class in high school or college or whenever you took that. And you might think of, you know, King Louis of France or King Henry in England or Alexander the Great. Some of you may even say, you know, King James of Cleveland, Miami, and L.A. I would say I prefer Jordan, but that's a debate for another time. And if you're like, what is he talking about? It's a basketball joke. I apologize. But the question becomes, you know, what do monarchs and royalty have in common? Well, they have wealth, power, a strong military. But regardless of those traits, those are probably what the first century Jews were probably looking for in their Messiah. And I'd even argue that Jesus' disciples before the crucifixion they were probably expecting Jesus to lead some type of political revolution, an attempt to rise to power. But rather than, leading out of, or rather than leading an uprising, Jesus laid down his life, and he called his followers to do the same. And time and time again, throughout Jesus' life, he went against messianic expectation, and he paved a new way for what the kingdom of God would look like not an earthly temporal kingdom that rises to power and flames out when the leader reaches their apex, but an eternal kingdom that transcends our human understanding by building its foundation on love and demonstrates its power through compassion, grace, and peace. So this morning, I want to turn to the Gospel of Matthew and look at Jesus' teaching on weakness and vulnerability and see how that informed his ministry and then finally see how that played out in his daily life. So, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 5 and see where Jesus lays out the countercultural values of God's kingdom. So, let's read Matthew 5, 3 through 12 together. And it's a lot, so I'm going to breeze through it with you, okay? So, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will see mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account, and we'll stop there. And this passage is fascinating because it completely reverses the values observed in society back then and even today. Because those kingdom values values we just read, they commend the people who our role would describe as losers as weak, as unsuccessful. But the Beatitudes call those who follow Jesus to stand out as different from those around them. You know, where the world calls for a ruthless pursuit of, a ruthless pursuit of, of self-seeking, of selfishness, of, of putting ourselves first, the way of Jesus tells us that we are to f- pursue Him out of love, out of peace, out of compassion. And you know, the world, wo- the world worries about whether we're winning or losing, but the way of Jesus is not concerned about winning or losing, but with how well we are loving. You know, following Jesus means that we're willing to choose to lose sometimes if it means that we can love someone well. Living the way of Jesus, it's not always easy because it doesn't define success. The world does Success the way that, we, that, that Jesus does. But quite frankly, success through the lens of the world has been ingrained in us from a young age, right? It's hard to shake, and it's not all bad. I learned how to work hard from the ways of the world, right? But true purpose and contentment will never be found into so the success of the world. It'll only leave us wanting more. I mean, just look at the rich and the famous in our world. They can literally have anything. They can buy anything they want to, Right? And we see this every day. We see them buying more, doing more, getting more. I think back to the beginning of this year when there was that billionaire space race between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and they're trying to be the first one to space and send celebrities to space, and they're just kind of wondering, what are you doing all that money? Like, can I just have a million dollars or something? Like, I could use that pretty well. Um, But it seems like they just can't get enough. They want more and more. Like, they just aren't happy. And the reason for that, I believe, is because contentment is only found through the way of Jesus, living God's way. It may seem foolish in the ways of the world, but when all is said and done, the world can't comfort, it cannot give inheritance, satisfy, show mercy, or call you their child like God can. You know, the way of Jesus, it's different, and it will feel wrong at first, but it's the only path to that true joy. And it starts by accepting our weaknesses and be willing to make ourselves vulnerable because the only way that we can accept God's goodness is if we're willing to admit that we need him to be our strength when we are weak. It requires us to be vulnerable with ourselves and acknowledge that we need his help to, and guidance and grace in our lives. And of so to truly follow Jesus means being willing to humble ourselves because anything less than that comes up short. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. It just means we have to accept that we aren't and trust him who is. And so we see Jesus' teaching on the values of God's kingdom, but we also see it demonstrated through his ministry. Let's turn to Matthew 19 real quick. And in Matthew 19, we see every children's pastor's favorite passage, which reads this, "...the children were being brought to him in order that that he may lay his hands on them to pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them, but Jesus said this, "...let the children come to me, and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs." And this interaction, it seems like a simple one, right? The disciples, I think I can say this word with you and not the kids, the disciples are being kind of a jerk, right? I can't say that in kids' verse. I might get in trouble. They're being kind of rude, right? They didn't want Jesus being bothered with these kids. But notice verse 14, Jesus says, Let the children come to me, for it is such as these that what? The kingdom of heaven belongs. Now, where do we just hear about God's kingdom? Matthew 5, right? So Jesus is saying that the kingdom, or that kids, matter in his kingdom. But actually, he's saying more than just that. Because if we look at the context of that day and age, children back then, they had little social status. Just like women, just like slaves back then. So while Jesus is talking about kids, which he is, he's also inferring that even the most weak and vulnerable in society have a place in his kingdom. And if we turn a chapter back, we see Jesus have another interaction with another child, to which he says whoever humbles themselves as a child will be the greatest in his kingdom. And so Jesus is reinforcing what he taught by making a somewhat provocative statement that God's kingdom, it stands in contrast to that of the world. Greatness isn't about how charismatic or wealthy or authoritative you may be, but by your level of humility and vulnerability. Because Humility, it keeps us in check. It helps us to stay focused on what is truly important to us and to Jesus. And we see it again in Matthew chapter 21 of the triumphal entry. And you're probably familiar with this passage, Easter wasn't that long ago, where Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey and people throw their coats and palm leaves on the ground, shouting, Hosanna, the Son of David! And it's up there in the screen, you can read it, but we're not going to. But if you were to go further into verses 10 through 11, the writer explains that Jesus rode on a donkey to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. But What's interesting is that Zechariah's prophecy, it's actually based on the story of David's return to the city after he defeated Absalom's rebellion. And so when David rode, into, rode back into Israel riding on a donkey as triumph as king, he did so in a way that was humble and peaceful. And so the choice for donkey, or the donkey for both David and Jesus is important because most kings, they would choose a war horse, right? They'd try to probably find the biggest horse they could, ride into town, trumpets blaring, but they chose a small, funny-looking donkey, right? Which meant that the kingdom would be one of peace rather than coercion. Now, once again, Jesus is making this statement That God's kingdom, which began years ago, even with King David, was not meant to be built on power and authority, but a willingness to accept weakness and to live vulnerably. So we see Jesus teach the importance of this. We see it demonstrated through his ministry. But lastly, we also see it played out in his daily life. And so I want to turn to Matthew chapter 26 together. And in Matthew 26, we get to the climax of the Easter story, right? where Jesus heads to the garden with his disciples to pray. And I want to read verses 36 to 39, which says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray. He took, his, took with him Peter and two sons of the Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet not what I want, but what you want. And so when we read this passage, it comes off quite surprising because we see a set of Jesus, at least in terms of the book of Matthew, that we haven't seen before. Because up to that point, Jesus has always addressed his death with a sense of hope and purpose. But here we see Jesus wrestle with deep emotional turmoil to the point of essentially asking God, is there any other way? And so Jesus was truly wrestling with what was to come, And we see God himself express weakness in that moment, express vulnerability in a genuine way. And this is not just my speculation, but the fact that the gospel writers include this in their writing shows how profound and meaningful that moment of vulnerability was to them and to those who would read it from years to come. You know, perhaps the reason it's there is to show that Jesus led differently. You wouldn't imagine seeing a government leader express themselves publicly in the way that Jesus was in that moment. But here is Jesus demonstrating what the kingdom of God looks like. Now, does that mean that we just go and destroy our filters and walk around like a wet mess, being completely open? No. But it does mean that we be open and honest with others, right? Especially with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, because in that moment, it seems that Jesus needed community. He needed his closest friends. It's why he brought the disciples along. Now, unfortunately, you know the story, they couldn't stay awake and it foreshadowed what was to come when they betrayed him, or didn't betray him, but they kind of left him on his own. But regardless, it demonstrates to us that vulnerability within community is essential for spiritual and emotional health. Our weaknesses are not meant to be our own burden, but shared with those that we love and trust. The world tells us to be careful with who we trust, to hide our true selves. But the way of Jesus encouraged us to depend on those we love for encouragement and support. And then it calls us to respond to the needs of those around us that he has surrounded us with. So to sum up what we've observed in Matthew so far, the disciples, they were looking for, and the Jewish people, they were looking for a Messiah in the shape of this warrior king to build an earthly kingdom... But Jesus came as a humble servant, making the greatest act of humility and selflessness anyone can make to the point of laying down his life for all of us. And through his selfless act, he paints a picture of God's kingdom, which stands apart from the world as it embraces weakness and vulnerability. But unfortunately, it's easy to lose sight of what Jesus taught, and it's easy to get caught up in the world's definition of success And I would beg to argue that the times of the church has struggled throughout history is when the church has lost sight of the way that Jesus led and led instead out of power and authority and selfish ambition rather than Jesus' way of weakness and vulnerability. And so I want to give you a few quick examples of this. But first, I want to establish a few principles before I do. Because, number one, no matter how much we mess up or lose sight of kingdom values that Jesus taught, God's church will always prevail. God has used flawed people to accomplish his mission time and time again. And that's good news for me, because I know I'm not perfect. Hopefully, you guys, maybe you guys aren't too, I don't know. And number two is this, that the times throughout history, when the church has lost sight of the way of Jesus, more times than not, their intentions were probably pure. But rather, the ways they went about that were through earthly measures, rather than the ways of the God's kingdom. Does that make sense? So I don't want to give you some examples and say, these leaders are terrible people. They're evil. They're bad. Most likely they were just misguided because no one is perfect. Perfection isn't the goal. Our goal is to be led by the Holy Spirit as we do our best to embrace kingdom values. And so these examples, good things still happened. God still moved. But barriers to the gospel were also established as an outcome of faulty perspectives let me give you just four quick examples of times when the church has lost sight of kingdom values. And then we'll wrap things up. So number one was the Roman Emperor Constantine. Anyone know about Constantine, when he did? So Constantine, he was the Roman Emperor, and he established Christianity as the official religion of Rome. He made a great conversion, started following Jesus, which was a pretty big deal because back in that day and age, if you read the New Testament, we see that the first church, they struggled with the Roman Empire so many times. They faced persecution. You see Apostle Paul and jail. all apostles go through different difficult things. And so Christianity back then, it still stood opposed to these Roman values, beliefs, and religion. So you would think that this change would be a good one. And in some ways, it really was. It created an atmosphere where Christianity would, could flourish and have no fear of persecution. That's great. But it also meant that some of the kingdom values that Jesus taught Became watered down and forgotten because Constantine, he waged war in the name of Christ, ignoring Jesus' commands to be a peacemaker. Because Christianity was the law of the land, many people facetiously identified as Christian because it meant that they could get some economic gain and societal privilege. So, was it all bad? No, definitely not. But with that power came a tension that arose and challenged the way of Jesus. Let me give you another one The Great Schism. Out of the Roman Christianity came the rise of two churches: the Church in the East, the Orthodox Church, and the Church in the West, the Roman Catholic Church. And at first, these two churches they tried to live in unison, right? But after time, tensions began to rise. Doctrinal differences came about, and the Eastern Church said, "We don't like the Pope anymore. We're not a fan of that guy." And then there were also growing socio-political differences between the East and the West, causing these two churches to essentially split and break apart leading to a tension between the two that exists even to this day, all due to a struggle for power. Look at the Reformation in the 15th century. You know, due to a variety of different factors, corruption began to spread in the Catholic Church. Individuals in the Church, they desired to address some of those concerns. Reformers like Luther and Calvin began to call for change, which is great. But the call for change soon led to a full-fledged split Which led to the establishment of many different denominations, paving the way for kind of where we're at today, right? Where you have churches in every corner, different names, different places. And of course, the church back then, it needed the reform. You know, Catholics would probably admit, we made some big mistakes and we needed the reform. But even though there was some good that came out of it, it did lead to a lot of disunity in the church that we see even to this day. I want to give you one last example and it's a recent one that I like to call the cultural divide. And many of you remember a time when Christian values were widely accepted. Everyone went to church. Media seemed to be more, media, media more family-friendly. And around the 1970s, secular ideals began to become more widely accepted. The church, with good intentions, tried to maintain its moral hold on culture. And this led to some Christians becoming, you know, more active in politics in order to preserve some of those traditional values. And let me just be clear. I am all for holding Christian values. It's what we talked about earlier with the ways of the kingdom. I'm all for voting and being engaged in politics. We need to be. But unfortunately, what happened is rather than two groups simply having differences of opinions and values, it almost created a war over what people call today the secular versus the sacred. People who Jesus calls the church to love became the enemy and were honestly considered as evil. And this battle did two things, in my opinion. Number one, it brought disunity in the church because, let's be honest, most of us here were probably not okay at looking at people and saying, hey, that's a, that's, that person's evil, that's my enemy. So it divided the church between how we treat others, how we gauge in culture, how we share the gospel, but also with the rise in political engagement, Christians of different political parties couldn't really get along, and it caused a division in that way. And I want to tell you this about unity, is that unity is not about getting everyone to agree It's about getting everyone to recognize the image of God in one another. Because that is what Jesus came to do, right? He came to bring salvation to all people, Jews and Gentiles. And so when you look at the first church, what do you see? People with a wide variety of opinions, different things going on, but yet they came together and loved one another because they saw the image of God within each other. The second thing it did is it hurt the church's reputation, let me give you a quick example. This is a real one that I saw on Facebook a couple weeks ago. I have a friend who is a Christian. He's also the worship leader at his church. And he posted a video on Facebook calling people who vote differently from them, this is his actual words, idiots and stupid. Now, most of us, thankfully, don't do that. But unfortunately, there is a loud minority that oftentimes is louder than the majority, right? But if we even as so much as do 10% of what he did, we paint a picture of God's kingdom that isn't loving, that isn't Christ-centered. In fact, that rhetoric is one of an earthly kingdom, not of God's kingdom. Because our God, he sits on a throne above every throne, above every office. He doesn't need a war he doesn't even need a ballot to see his kingdom come. His kingdom has already come because of us, our, his people, living out kingdom values, being meek, hungering for righteousness, being merciful, having a pure heart, and being an agent of change. It's my belief that the biggest threat to the church today isn't a political party or a movement or a person or a group. The only threat to the church is ourselves. And what I mean by that is if we as followers of Jesus fail to embrace the way that Jesus taught, if we don't lead with weakness and vulnerability, we're going to bring persecution on ourselves because we are fighting the world with their own weapons and that will never prevail. And so I want to remind you of one more story from Scripture. You know, just after Jesus prayed in the garden, the soldiers came to arrest him. And what did Peter do? He pulled out his sword, chopped off the soldier's ear that came to arrest Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus performs his final miracle. He heals the ear of the soldier that came to arrest him. The person that came to cause him harm, he healed. And then he turns to Peter and he says, Put away your sword. And I think the words that Jesus spoke to Peter are the same words that he's speaking to the church today. We need to lay down our swords and recognize that many of the people who are perceived to be attacking the church are just people in need of Christ's love. They're trying to find joy through the ways of the world. And in fact, some of these people, they've been hurt by the church. One of the most difficult things, for me at least, being a pastor today, is, is seeing the headlines of, of big-name pastors who have moral failures. And in those moments, there's so many people hurt when they see those things happen, who have been in those situations, And so many people who are angry at the church may just be hurting because the church might have caused them some hurt in some way. And just as Jesus healed the ear of the soldier, he still wants us to love and bring healing to all people, even those who appear to be against us. If all we do is fight, we simply build a wall between us and them, and we're creating a greater divide. And I'm not saying that we don't stand up for what is true or what is right. We should. But let's use some compassion Let's build some relationships. Let's let down our walls and recognize that we are all people created by God and made in his image who want to be known and want to be loved. I love what Brian Zahn posted recently. He said, with wars, martial, political, and rhetorical raging all around us, the church must lean into the way of peace. We need to be a place of stability, not one that adds to the chaos of our world. And so it's time for the church that we paint a new picture and that we reclaim those kingdom values. Because I believe the next revival or renewal for the church today starts when we begin to embrace vulnerability and weakness. And that means we stop trying to fight and we, stop, and we start trying to love as Christ loved us, that we aren't afraid to call it the areas where we're flawed and work to better reflect Christ to a world who needs Him desperately. Because when the world sees a church with arms wide open, instead of fists clenched tightly, that is when they'll stop trying to fight. Will there be some disagreements? Of course there will be. Will there be some hardships for us? Most likely. But if we hide our weaknesses, if we aren't open about ourselves and our struggles, if we avoid accountability in the areas where we need to be vulnerable, we're widening the gap that Jesus came to close when he was here on earth and through the church. So, how do we do that? Well first, we accept the Imago Dei or image of God that is within all of us. Flaws and all. And I say flaws kind of facetiously because we serve a good and perfect God, right? Which means anything that He creates, it's good. There's no flaws. We just tend to muddy it up as humans, right? We make mistakes, we have our flaws, but at our core, who we are as human, your personality. Your giftings, your talents, the things that make us who we are, not where you work, not how much you make or what you do, not even who you know, but who you are. That was established by God, and that is good. Now, I understand that accepting ourselves is one of the most uncomfortable things to do. I think that's why we try to fight our battles outwardly through the ways of the world, because it distracts us from what we actually need to do, which is turn the attention back to ourselves. And truly examine who we are. And learn to appreciate who God created us to be. Because the areas where we're not strong are the ways that we fit into the body of Christ. Because our weaknesses acknowledge that we need God and others. Because that brings us to point number two, is that we need to recognize that we need community. Because our strength and our weaknesses, especially our weaknesses... They paint a picture of the body of Christ because the area where I'm weak, you may be strong in. And together we can support one another and share the gospel in a way that is healthy and whole. And so once we learn to accept our weaknesses and become vulnerable with ourselves, it becomes easier for us to be real with those that are around us. And like I said earlier... That's what the world needs. It needs to see the church being genuine in itself, loving one another, acknowledging the image of God within ourselves and one another. And that brings us to number three, that all people are made in God's image. And it's our job to help them to see it, to share God's love, to help them to see that they were made in God's image, created by him, worthy of love. And so I'm encouraged this morning because we are going to be a church that does that. We're going to admit our faults. When we mess up, we're going to apologize. We're going to love unconditionally as Christ does for us. And we're going to ascribe ourselves, the kingdom values, and see God's kingdom come here on earth as in heaven. And so I want to end today with a question. And the question is this. What are you uncomfortable with? What is the flaw that you've been avoiding? And it could be a genuine area of weakness, or it could be a lie that's been spoken over to you by someone in your life. But I would encourage you to jot this question down, maybe take a picture of it, pull it the YouVersion app and save it, because I would encourage you to, to keep this question in the back of your mind this week and to begin to rap- grapple with, what are the areas in my life where I need to grow? What are the areas that I'm not so confident about? Because healing comes when we can begin to sit and really feel and deal with the emotions that are connected to that. Because let me, let me, my guess is it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be comfortable. But when we begin to wrestle with that and acknowledge that and accept that, that is when healing can begin. And so I would challenge you to think about this question. Ask this question throughout your week. And really, really deal with it. Really feel how it makes you feel when you think about that flaw or that area of weakness. And then I want you to pray this prayer, and I'm going to close this prayer today. But it's the same thing. You could, you could take a picture of this prayer, write it down, hold the viewers have and heaven, and find it. But I want to close with this prayer today, and then Pastor Dave, you can come. But let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for creating us in your image. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We apologize for questioning your workmanship. Help us to embrace who you created us to be. May we accept our weaknesses and live vulnerably with others so that you may be glorified and your kingdom may come. Amen. Amen.